please take your Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 will be beginning our time in verse 16. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, you can find Ecclesiastes 3 on page 658. Ecclesiastes 3.16 through chapter 4, verse 3. This is the word of the living God. Please listen to it as it's read in your hearing. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter And for every work, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been And has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we always need your help. And some mornings, Lord, we feel it more than others. And Lord, I feel it this morning. Would you come and open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive all that you have for your people today. May your words be precious to us. May we not not discount or ignore a single one of them. But may each find their appointed places in our hearts and change us and transform us. Oh God, I pray that we would tremble at the thought that we could be exposed to your word and not changed. Have mercy, O God, and change us, we pray. 
In our Savior's name, amen. Well, as uh, most parents know, or anyone who's around kids for very long, uh, it doesn't take long for children to verbalize the phrase, that's not fair. And soon after they discover how to pronounce these words, they put them into frequent and repeated usage. And while it maybe takes them a while to learn how to say that phrase, uh, even before they can verbalize it, they, they know innately, don't they, the difference between right and wrong and when they themselves have been wrong. And not only do they understand that, but they, they feel that, don't they? There is a, I don't know if righteous is too much of a spread or a, a going out on a limb, but there's an indignation when they are wronged. They have an acute sense of justice, and yet, if we could be honest, it's a bit of a selective justice, isn't it? While they have a, uh, an acute, a strong sense of justice when they are wronged by others, that sense of justice is a little bit dampened when they are the one wronging another, or they witness uh, another being wronged. It, it, it's circumstantial justice. They, they feel it sharply when it involves them, and when it doesn't involve them, they, they don't feel it as much, do they? Now, thankfully, we as adults, we grow out of this. I'm, I'm thankful you laughed at that part. I would like to say that as we enter into adulthood and we get married and we have a family and we engage in the business place and in the marketplace, that that over time that sense of justice grows less and less circumstantial and more and more pure. But if we could be honest with ourselves, it too often doesn't. Too often we, like children are far more concerned when we are the ones wronged than when another one is wronged. And it's to that theme exactly that Kohelet turns his attention this morning. In verses 1 through 15, Solomon has established the doctrine of God's total and complete sovereign control of all things. And at the end of that passage, in verse 15, he kind of ends on that that. Dominant theme, God will bring all things into remembrance. God is judge. And so, so Kohelet has just finished telling us God is the sovereign ruler over all creation. And he is the sovereign judge over all peoples. Every act will be brought into justice. And with those two doctrines before us, we, with Kohelet, are really forced to ask this question. If God is sovereign, and he is, and if God is the judge of the earth, and he is, how do we think about and respond to the rampant injustice that is around us? If we took Kohelet at all seriously in verse 1 of chapter 3 when he says every single thing has an appointed time. It is a proper season. If we took him seriously in verse 11 when he said everything in God's economy is beautiful, appropriate in its own time. 
then we've got to ask ourselves as a people who live after the fall, under the sovereign rule of God, before the certainty of death, and we want to live that life by faith, how do we respond and think about the issues of injustice? Before we tackle that topic head on this morning, I want to remind you, or you could perceive it as a warning, Kohelet is not a fan of easy answers. He isn't going to tell you some cute little saying that you could write on a bookmark to keep in your Bible. He's not going to tell you it'll all be fine, it'll all work out, it's, it's really easy actually. No, he, he looks deeply and honestly into these things and, and at times is more concerned with getting you and I to think with him than perhaps giving us the answer that solves all of our problems. So let him frustrate you at points. That's what he's trying to to do. While we are asking this question of how to think about and respond to injustice, we want to do so under three headings this morning. The first is we want to look at the problem of injustice. We want to look at the problem of injustice, and we'll see that in verses 16 and 17. The reality of injustice is absolutely undeniable and unavoidable to, to any who wants to look at the world we live in with an ounce of honesty. Look at what Kohelet says in verse 16. He, he is looking at this existence that is under the sun and in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness. Now, as we kind of pick up our, what is he talking about? He's saying that in the place of justice, and we would normally think of courts, wouldn't we? In places where they are established with one purpose, one goal in their, in their existence. They exist to do one thing, to do and protect what is right. And in the place of righteousness, I actually think he's intentionally being broader in other institutes that are also set up to protect and advance the cause of righteousness in these places, what do we find? He uses the same word for both. Wickedness. And his point is simple. In the places where justice and righteousness should be flourishing in the place where people who are weak and need defending ought to be protected, in the places where righteousness should be abounding, even there the sinfulness of this world, the sinfulness of the post-fall world is so pervasive that these places have become dens of wickedness safe havens for unrighteousness. That that is how prevalent, that is how saturated our world is with sin. That even the courts that are supposed to uphold justice are unjust. That even the institutes that are meant to produce and promote righteousness are unrighteous. Solomon doesn't sugarcoat the situation at all. It's not as though he says, you know, it's not as bad as you think. No, he says, it's, no, it's probably worse 
than you ever imagined. And it might be helpful for us, before I continue to use the word injustice, it might be helpful for me to define what is meant by it. Solomon uses the word wickedness in verse 16. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he uses the word oppression. He's looking at the same idea in both of those. For for both of those words, I tend to use the word injustice. Uh, As one commentator defines injustice, he says injustice... Simply put, is an immoral act from which others feel the consequences. Since we live in a perpetually in relationship, injustice is the most frequent of sins. It's quite easy to understand. You and I are sinners and we live in relationship with one another. And when one person sins impacts negatively another person, you have injustice. What was owed, what was deserved, was each of us are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when that is not met, you have sin, you have wickedness, and you have injustice. So let's not just think of this purely in a uh, legal sense. This is wickedness and sin in human relationships. And if that's the definition, both for us this morning and with Kohelet in our text, well, where do we see injustice? Well, I wish we could say otherwise, but we see it in every stratosphere of society. We see it in all relationships. As verse 16 says, there's no safe place. Even those institutes designed to protect what is just Even there, injustice rules and reigns. We see injustice in our courts, in our own country, and in other countries. As one of our brothers pointed out this morning, Ireland has decided that it is legal for some parents to murder their unborn child. That is unjust. That is unjust. That is horrific. And it grieves me to see a country that was defending the right for those children to live, uh, turned their back on it, as our nation did 45 years ago. The courts that should, in our country, this is, this is here in America, this is here in Kirkland, the people who are tasked with ruling and reigning rightly allow and actually protect those who want to abort their children. And each day in our country, 3,300 of them are killed. That's more than the people who died on September 11th, 2001, every day in our country. Injustice runs through the courts. Injustice is even found in the church If you have at all seen what's going on in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention right now, you are seeing an utter failure for church leaders to be a voice for the abused in their churches. That's unjust. That should never happen. But it does. Schools are places where children are to be taught truth and to be nurtured. What do we find? They're often sold lies and sold a bill of corruption. The home, 
instituted by God to be a place where children are raised and spouses are loving to each other. How often are homes anything but that? A place where children are afraid and spouses go unloved and worse, abused. Our society as a whole is filled from top to bottom with racial discrimination, rape, and human trafficking. Friends, all of these things are, it's not as though it exists in a world far beyond our borders. It exists in our country. It exists in our state. It exists in Kirkland. What Solomon said 3,000 years ago couldn't be more true now. And how does Solomon respond to this? And how are we to respond to this? He he responds to this with an affirmation of the certainty of divine justice. He says in verse 16, I see injustice and wickedness everywhere. Where does my heart turn when I see this atrocity over and over and over again? I turn to the only place I can turn to. I turn to the sovereign judge of all that he will one day do what is right. Injustice, thankfully, even though it doesn't feel it right now, injustice is hevel. It's vapor. It it, it isn't forever. But it feels like it, doesn't it? It can feel like some of these atrocities that happen in in our courts, our churches, our schools, our homes, and our societies, it can feel as though they will never end. The Scripture says that's just not true. One day, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, and he reminds you of what he said in verse 1 of chapter 3. There is a time for every matter and a time for every work. God will judge in his own time. Like life, injustice is vaporous. It will come to an end. One day. God will put an end to all injustice. All wickedness will be abolished. He will, as Genesis 18 says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He will. He will. He will. Hebrews 10, verse 30 and 31. For he who has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That is a promise. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fear-filled thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Church, your God is sovereign. Your God is judge. And one day He will make all things right. So how are we who live in this world, how are we to respond to this injustice? Well, one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways is to believe and trust that our God will one day do as He has promised. He will judge and set all things 
right. And that should be a comfort to those who are oppressed. We, we can't believe or be misled into believing that all of the injustice and oppression happens out there. There are those in, in this room this morning who have suffered incredible pain and wickedness in their life. God will one day set it straight. Not one single act of wickedness or injustice will go unpunished. But God will, but, but each of those acts of injustice, each of those acts of oppression, each will meet with the full fury of God's just wrath. And it will meet with God's wrath on one of two days. If you are here this morning and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, the full fury of God's divine wrath for your sin and my sin and those moments in our life where we were the oppressor, we were the ones doing injustice, God poured out wrath on Christ for our injustice in the hours of darkness on the cross. It was an hour of judgment. It was not an hour where our sins were swept under the rug. It was an hour where the fury of God was unleashed on Christ for what we did. And not one sin escaped God's justice. It's not like we will arrive in heaven and say, yeah, He paid most of it, but some slipped through the cracks. If you're in Christ, you were judged at the cross. If you were not in Christ, there will come a day where you will stand before the judge of judges and you will be judged. And God's justice will be meted out in its fullest measure. The full fury of the wrath of Almighty God will be unleashed righteously and rightly and justly against your sin. And as it is with human courts now, when we see some horrific crimes and we see the judgment come down, so often we say, oh, that, yeah, I get that, that they tried, but the, the penalty just doesn't fit the crime. It just doesn't add up. You can't pay for it as humans like that. We will stand amazed at the justice of God. And we won't think to ourselves, wow, they really got off the hook. We will say how awesome and how terrible is the justice and the righteousness of God. Full is His judgment. Lacking nothing. Solomon says that day will come. And as Christians especially when we are the objects of oppression. By faith, we have to look forward to that day and said, well, the judge of the earth will do what is right. Surely vengeance is God, not mine. But Solomon doesn't end there. Not only does he look at the, the presence or the problem of injustice, but he, he wants to drive at the point of injustice. So if you're taking notes, that's our second point this morning. The point of injustice. Verse 18, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, God is testing them. God is 
doing so much in this world and we can't think in simplistic, narrow terms. God is in the allowance of injustice now. One of the reasons, don't oversimplify and say the only reason, but one of the reasons is that he is testing man. You might say, well, what is he testing man to see? He tells you in verse 18. God is testing them to, to, that they may see, that man might see that they themselves are but beasts. Injustice really peels back all the layers and the illusions and the hypocrisy and the, the masks that we wear as humans, and it shows us the dark heart of man. And, and Solomon uses very drastic language. He says that man is seen as, as being beast-like. The one who is made in the image of God in injustice behaves like an animal. He who was to be the, God's vice regent over creation, he who was to rule and reign righteously, he who was to be over the created order, over the beasts of the field, he himself now in injustice and sin acts like one. And that should startle us and disgust us and jump off the page to us, and, and we should say to some degree, that ought not to be. But it is. Why does God allow injustice? He does so in part to test men. God allows injustice in this world to reveal to man just how dark and sinful his heart is. The wickedness and the injustice of this world demonstrates over and over and over again that we are in every single respect broken. That we are in desperate need of saving grace. That man is totally, utterly depraved. That every portion of us is stained with sin and no matter how hard we try on our own merits no matter how much we may want to not be this way it is true of us by nature we are this way i was listening this this point was driven home to me again this week i was listening to a podcast by three very very smart men uh, none of them christians that i am aware of and they were speaking on some of the worst massacres in modern military history. And I was stunned to hear them, one man say, and they all agreed, you know, in these, in these cases, you know, most people are good. It's just there's a few bad, evil people in the world. These are historians. If history has taught us one thing, just one. Would it not be that man, regardless of his ethnicity, country, time, social status, income, marriage status, whether they're a parent, no matter what time, place they've lived in, they are all wicked. And these men couldn't see that even if it was standing right in front of them. They missed what the test shows us. We're sinful. Injustice exposes the dark heart of man, and man in that sin believes himself to be powerful, and he loses sight of an undeniable reality that we will all one day die. 
In his sense of perceived power, the aggressor, the oppressor, forgets his own mortality. Look at verse 19. This man who is made in God's image, he's not a beast, but he might act like one. Verse 19, he, he shares the same fate as the animals. He dies. They have the same breath or, or ruah. They, they, they breathe the same. And in this regard, he has no advantage over the beast. They, they both will die. He's not saying there's no distinguishing features between humans and animals. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is with regards to life and death, they are the same. Verse 19, or 20, they go to the same place. That's the grave. And all are from the dust and return to dust. They, they are both affected by the curse. They both have a fixed number of days. And as the beloved family pet dies and is buried in the yard and returns to dust, so each of us share that same faith. Oh, we might be buried with a, a little bit more pomp and circumstance, but our end, our, the end result's the same. We all suffer from the effect of what the Lord promised us in Genesis 3. You will work by the sweat of your brow until that day that you die. You will return to the ground, for out of the ground you were taken. You are dust, and you will return to dust. While we share that same fate, you could say, that same reality of death, we do not share the same destination. Look at verse 21. The spirit of the man goes upwards, and the spirit of the animal goes down. Now, it is an unfortunate translation that at least the ESV has before us this morning. When Kohelet says, who knows, um, this isn't a who knows kind of question. He's not saying and wondering, you know, I know that death's real, but after that, I have no idea. Who knows? He's not saying that at all. I mean, just keep in mind what he's already said in this chapter, verse 11. God has stamped eternity on the heart of man. Solomon knows that eternity is a certainty. Three verses earlier in verse 17, he says, After you die, you stand before God and he judges you. He knows the spirit of a man goes up. Verse 7 of chapter 12, The spirit returns to God who gave it and is judged. Verse 14 of chapter 12, God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is not Kohelet wondering, you know, I really don't know what happens after this life. He's asking us a pointed question. He's saying, who is the one who knows this? His point is simple. The destination of man is not something that can be learned through observation and experience. Unless you buy one of the books by the people who died and went to heaven, came back, wrote about it, and for 1999, you can read of what heaven's like. No, no, Solomon says that's ridiculous. By observations, you see someone die, but you do not see where they go. And how many times do you have a conversation with someone you work with, you're related to, or you live next to, and you ask them, do you know what happens after you die? And they say, I have no idea. Who knows? Maybe I'll die like a dog and go into the ground. Or, or maybe there is an afterlife. Maybe there is judgment. Maybe there is a God. I don't, who knows? Solomon wants to point out the irony, the tragedy is a better word, 
that we live the way that we live and give no thought to what will come after. Sediments of I don't know what happens after death is an epidemic in our society today. If you don't believe me, run a science experiment. Walk up and down your street (laughs) and ask each neighbor, do you know what happens when you die? This could yield some interesting results, but ask people. They will say, I have no idea. And some of them even flaunt it as a point of intellectual honesty and and having arrived at this pinnacle of truth to say, I don't know, as though agnosticism were the peak of wisdom. It's not. Solomon says, as it were, how can you not know? And yet you live as though you knew. It's true, verse 21, the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. There is a difference. And yet this injustice does not negate his conclusion for the book. It doesn't negate what he has told us many times throughout this book already. Life is a gift. Look at verse 22. We've seen this pattern many times. We'll see it many more. I saw that the good, it's not, again, it's not diminutive, it's superlative. This is the good. Man should rejoice in his work. And he adds something to it we haven't seen before. For this is his lot. In light of the sovereign control of God over all things, and the judge of the earth, and he who appoints everything, this is why he gave life. To be rejoiced in, to be the source of joy, to be Um, employing man in labor, in work, this is a gift from God. Life and work and food are gifts. And as gifts are meant today, so they were meant then. They were given to be enjoyed. And the injustice of this world doesn't change that. It doesn't change Solomon's point in the book. It doesn't negate the fact that life is a gift meant to be enjoyed, and maybe that is what bothers Kohelet so much about injustice. Maybe that's what makes injustice so hard for Kohelet to stomach, because life is a gift that was meant to be enjoyed, not abused. That man was commissioned by God to be the cultivator of joy in this life and the cultivator of righteousness in this life. And instead of being that, he has turned some lives into something so bad that he'll say later it might have been better that they weren't born at all. Perhaps that's what makes injustice so hard to deal with. Is not only is the gift not enjoyed, it's perverted and abused in ways that we can't even imagine in some cases. How are we to respond to the injustice and the wickedness of the world? Well, as we've said before, by believing and trusting that God will judge But there's another response. 
When we see injustice, and if you have eyes, you see injustice. When you see the injustice and the wickedness of the world, recognize yet again just how dark man's heart really is and how desperately he needs to be rescued from that. The repeated theme of injustice is man is lost and wicked and cannot save himself. Oh, how he needs a Savior. Oh, how he needs to be rescued. And let us not pretend as though all of this lay out there. We needed rescue. The injustice of our lives, the wickedness of our lives, those occasions where we grossly sinned against our neighbors and our God, they spoke a message that was true of me and is true of you. I desperately need to be saved. And in God's grace, if you're here this morning in Christ, He has saved you from that darkness. He's taken out that heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh and given you new desires and opened your eyes and given you life in His Spirit. He has saved you from that. And that is what we celebrate at the supper. Over and over again, my God has saved me. This is His body given for what? The full forgiveness of my sin. This is His cup given for the full forgiveness of my sin. My injustice was preaching a message that I couldn't deny. I needed saving and couldn't save myself. And now as we see that work by God's grace and the work of sanctification diminishing God willing in our lives, and we see it unfettered in the world, it should make our hearts long to see God do that in them. It should make us long, oh God, turn Ireland back. Oh God, turn our Supreme Court back. Oh God, turn the oppressors back. Oh God, do for them what you have done for me. I know you can. That's how we respond. Thirdly, not just the points of, of injustice or the problem of injustice, but let's look at the pain of, of oppression. The pain of oppression. Look at verses 2 and 3. Solomon is honest. Solomon is gritty here. He says that some oppression is so bad that you might begin to envy those who've died. Why? Because they've been, in some sense, freed from the pain of this life. This isn't any kind of suicidal thought. Nothing could be further from the truth. What it is is Solomon saying, you know what? Those who no longer live under the sun... They don't feel the pain that we do. Verse 3, he says, you know what? My, some cases are those who have yet to be born. Those who have neither seen good nor evil days. You know, there's something there. There is injustice in this world that is so horrific. Solomon says, you know, it might have been better. Have you ever thought that? If you haven't, 
I would say that we need to open our eyes to what is going on in the lives of people around us. Some of us have thought that of our own life. Certainly most of us, I hope, have wondered it at the others. And so why, we would say, well, why would Solomon say that in verses 2 and 3? Why would he say it's, it's better? I mean, there's something to, to, to look at there. Well, he, he gives us the reason in verse 1. What do the oppressed have? Well, they have two things. They have oppression and they have tears. Well, what do their oppressors have? They have all the power, Kohelet says. Behold, tears of the oppressed. No one to comfort. On the side of the oppressors, power. The last thing you would want an oppressor to have is power. And and so often in our world, that's exactly what they have. And it's devastating, isn't it? And that's the way it is. We look around us at some of the systems and situations, and they seem to have all the power, and our efforts feel so weak. None of us have looked at the issue of life in the abortion issue in our country and felt like, oh, you know, we have the power. No, we say the courts, the government, how will it ever? Isn't that what we see in our own situation? The oppressors have the power. And that drives Solomon crazy. And only one thing in this text is harder for him to swallow than that, and it's, it's what the oppressed don't have. It bothers him so much, he says it twice. And given his strict economy of words, he does not want us to miss this. Look at verse 1 in your Bibles. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressor's power, and there was no one to comfort them. Not only does injustice happen in this world, not only do the oppressed, as David would say, drown their pillow in their tears, not only do the oppressors have seemingly all the power, and I remember that we, we see above the sun as well and know that ultimately God has all the power and he will judge, but in this life as we experience it, the oppressors have all the power. Psalmist says, more than that, Their society doesn't even care that those who are around them do not even care enough to comfort them. As one commentator, Graham Ogden, says, the oppressed are not only mistreated, their plight and tears are ignored by the rest of their communities. Friends, so often, and I am am guilty of this as well, Too often we can think in terms of only two groups, the oppressors and the oppressed, and we forget there's a third group. So often it's us. Neither oppressed in this circumstance and not oppressing, a a, a group that stands on the outside, not the aggressor, not the recipient of those aggressions or uh, those being sinned against, and that middle group is often complacent and apathetic. That 
in the sight of injustice that we see with our eyes. We're not actively participating in it. Hopefully, if we are, we need to repent and turn the other direction. And often, God willing and God graciously, we aren't the direct recipients of it. Sometimes we are, and that is grievous. But often, we, we are a group observing. So how do we as a church and as people respond to oppression. First, we believe and trust that God will judge. Second, learn the lesson that man is sinful and needs a Savior and let that drive us to tell men how they might be reconciled to God. But this third point is the one that kills me the most. Because I see myself in verse 1. So often, um, I am not compassionate toward those who are suffering. And I've had to ask myself, why is that? And I didn't like the answer I came up with, so I'll share it with you. The answer that I've come to is that I, and I think I can use the term we, are self-centered. And when we are suffering, oh, do we want support? Oh, do we want compassion? Oh, do we want justice? Oh, do we want comforters? But when it isn't us, or it isn't someone that we desperately love, We can be aloof. We can be disconnected. We can be apathetic. We can be complacent. Why? It didn't impact me. And in those moments, I do not love my neighbor as myself. In those moments, could you say it's true that in the sin of omission... I am sinning relationally. I think you can. Yeah, I think you can. So how do we respond? This is not a sermon on a topic of try harder, do better. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is a sermon that is founded upon the gospel and says God has changed you. God has changed me. We are new creatures. How do we live in that new life as children who are to be obedient to our Father, as servants who, whose eyes, the psalm says, watch the hand of their master, that at the faintest twitch we would jump to do all that our master says to do. This is not, do not hear this sermon as go out and do justice so that God will love you more. That is not what we are saying. This is not saying, go out and do justice and don't preach the gospel. That is not what we are saying. Preach and love and proclaim the gospel to everyone, but in, in the life that the gospel is brought to you, also live it out in society. So what do we do? Let me give you three things. If we aren't, I had to narrow this down because if we don't, it'll just be overwhelming. It's probably already overwhelming. 
the first thing. We need God to desperately, we desperately need God to change our hearts and give us a heart of compassion. We need God to work in us and to kill the love of self and to fuel the love of our neighbor. I love me too much. I love my neighbor too little. I need God to kill the one and feed the other. That's what I desperately need the Spirit of God to do in me. That is what you need the Spirit of God to do in you. It is... It is so simple. They don't have people to comfort them. Go and comfort them. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice. And in the context of this sermon, weep with those who are weeping. Be compassionate. The church of Jesus Christ is the most loved people in existence. And we have received what from our God? Compassion. Compassion gives birth to compassion. We are the recipients of God's compassion, and that should so change us that we are compassionate people. That should be the effect of grace on us, and to my shame and our shame, it it too often isn't. So we need to seek God's face and say, Oh God, kill in me a love of self and grow in me a love of my neighbor. Grow compassion in my heart. Number two. Pray. No work will succeed if it is undertaken outside of the boundaries of prayer. You say, I don't know what I can do. Pray. Can you pray? Yeah, we all can pray. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember, and again, this is this there's a unique context to it, but the principle is the same. Identify and pray. The word for remember here is another word we would use for prayer. Pray for those. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. How are we to pray? With such zeal and heartache and grief and tears as though we were suffering alongside of them. Not a disheartened, oh God, you know, help, help so-and-so who's really you know, suffering. No! A heart that identifies with them and weeps in prayer and says, God, help! I, know, I don't know what else to say. Help! Be mighty here! Pray as though you were with them. Thirdly, cease being inactive and take action. We all have avenues that we can be engaged in. I don't want to present one as though it's the only one. Micah 6 8 is such a simple summary of what it means to be a follower of God. Oh man, what is good and what does God require? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Justice is to be active in our life. Again, this isn't a social gospel. This is the effect that the gospel should be having on society. Changed people living changed lives. James 1, what is pure and undefiled religion before God? Visit orphans, widows, in their affluence. No, in their affliction. 
when they are, the, in, in that day, the widows and the orphans were the most underprivileged, oppressed, marginalized, victimized group in society. And James is saying, do you want to know what a gospel-changed person looks like? They go to them, and they minister, and they love them, and they support them, and they pray with them, and they help them, and they love them. And they can love these other people because they have been loved firstly by God. And that love has transformed them into a people who also love. I know sometimes we want to make things complex. But doesn't this theme just boil down to what we teach our kids? It seems like every day, do unto others is you would have them do unto you? Think, if I were being oppressed and attacked, what would I want people to do? Usually we have a fair idea of what we want. Go and do that thing. Matthew 12, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law. And the prophets. Oh, that God would make us a people who trust Him for His judgment, who preach the gospel into the dark heart of man, and are made compassionate, active people in our societies for His glory and for the fame of His name. Let's pray. Oh, God, you and you only know. The cries, the tears, and the pain of the afflicted. You see every tear, you hear every sigh, you hear every groan, you hear every prayer. Burden us. Burden us to love our neighbors as you have called us to. To live a life that is the outflow of the gospel. And to show but the smallest portion of what you have done for us to another. Oh God, you have been compassionate to us Help us to be compassionate to others. Help us live a life of faith that looks to you and entrusts you when we ourselves are sinned against to know, oh God, you will one day set this straight. I don't need to let bitterness grow in my heart. I don't need to take revenge myself. I don't need to rise up and extract from them I can trust it all to the hands of my God. And I can look to Him for strength to live outside of myself and live for my neighbor. God, give us a heart, we pray. Subdue in us the love of sin and the love of self. 
and inflame in us a love for Christ and a love for our neighbor. On these hang the law and the commandments. Oh God, as we turn to your table now, remind us again, you can and do save men and women and children from utter darkness. May we praise you and bless you for what you have done, are doing, and will do in our life. And in that life, may we walk forward to a world that desperately needs to hear your gospel and see it lived out. For the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.